In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, Laird Scranton, is an independent software designer from Albany, New York, who writes about ancient mysteries, cosmology and language. His work includes articles published in the University of Chicago's Anthropology News Academic Journal, in Temple University's Encyclopedia of African Religion, and in the Vassar Quarterly Magazine. His book, The Science of the Dogen, was taught at Colgate University under the title Hidden Meanings, a study of the founding symbols of civilization. He is featured in John Anthony's West's Magical Egypt documentary series and in the Pyramid Code, a series broadcast by the Documentary Channel. Laird Scranton joins me today to talk about his latest book, The Science of the Dogen. Laird Scranton, welcome to In Discussion today and the Dimensions programming. It's such a privilege to be talking to you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, a pleasure to be here talking with you. I have spent uh, most of my time since receiving your books that you kindly sent to me on the science of the Dogen, and I've yet to reach the other the other books, but I felt that this was the most important one to start our program with. Yes, I would agree with that. It's it's the foundation for the other two. I'm interested, Led. You have a background in programming, and I soon came to the conclusion that that analytical sequencing or programming uh, model that you are used to came into use here very clearly in the way that you researched the symbolism of this culture. Would I be correct in assuming that? Yes, that, that's correct. It also helped me really to recognize that there was something important here because there are certain techniques I use as a programmer when designing, picking symbols to represent certain concepts within a, a computer program that I could see the same techniques at use um, in the Dogen uh, religion. And so that said to me that we had a set of design symbols and that there was intention behind the symbols. I was very interested and taken with the forward, obviously by John Anthony West. And although it's not a direction that we would want to go in um, contextually, but I would like to just, if I may, just quote from one paragraph I think that it's so profound in the many scientists that I talk to, it is relevant. And he states in the foreword, because the history of just about everything is written by the winners, it is invariably difficult to gauge, to judge, sometimes even to know that a battle has taken place or that one is underway. The winners are at liberty to distort, misrepresent or ignore all that does not support their official version. And it goes on to say sometimes this doesn't matter much if we are ignorant of the actual arguments that were once put forward by defenders of the flat earth theory we are scarcely the poorer for it however in other instances unquestioning acceptance of the winner's tale 
may carry serious adverse consequences. And I think that that is very important in commencing with this book because it says so much about society today, a hundred years ago and three thousand years ago, that it, it certainly, as he goes on uh, to use the terminology, uh, the establishment, play a great part in the way that Dogen or any other civilization, uh, whether it's Atlantis or Greek, uh, certainly has been manipulated in a certain direction uh, to possibly confuse all of us in the public domain. Would you concur with that? Yes. There's, over time, there's a certain investment, uh, intellectual investment and financial investment in a certain mode of thought. And the, the longer that mode of thought remains the prevailing mode of thought, the uh, less willing the, the people who, who defend that method are, are willing to change and look at things in a different way. What was it, and clearly I have read the makeup and the journey that you took into becoming involved with this, these theories, these practices, these civilizations, but what was the catalyst I'm interested to know that really took you in this direction rather than the civilization uh, particularly of the, the Egyptians or, or any other civilization? What was it about this that interested you in particular? Well, the, the interesting thing to me was that I could see that the Dogen represent a crossroads of several different traditions, which seemed intriguing to me. And they're a living culture, which means theoretically a person could talk to a Dogen priest and ask a question and get an intelligent or an informed answer to the question. That's a huge advantage over ancient Egyptian priests who have long been dead. So the fact that there might be an opportunity to learn some new things here from a living source seemed like it might be important. The ability to, to compare more than one tradition in a single culture also made a difference to me. It seemed like an opportunity that shouldn't be missed. I, mean, I could see that the Dogen have many of the outward trappings of Judaism and their religion. They wear skull caps and prayer shawls. They celebrate a jubilee year and they circumcise their young. But in their civil life, they have many of the outward trappings of ancient Egypt. They use the same calendars. They establish their villages and districts in pairs called upper and lower. And so thorough a comparison between the Dogen and the very ancient Egyptians that I tend to believe that if the Dogen do a particular thing, we'll find evidence that the Egyptians did the same thing. The Dogen, as you write here in the introduction, are a modern-day African tribal people. When did they depart from their original location and I realize that you had pointed out that it was possibly because of the infusion of Islam. Were there any other suggestions here, or can you offer any other ideas as to why they would have taken off to a different region? The evidence is not precise because we don't have written language for the Dogen, and so we don't have any written records to say absolutely that at such and such a time frame they moved from this locale to another. We can trace it back about as far as the 1500s when we know the Dogen moved from an area around the Niger River to their current locale along the cliffs in the desert in Mali. But looking at circumstantial evidence within their culture and making comparisons between that and what, what we know to be true about ancient Egypt, again and again it looks as if the Dogen are preserving a system that is 
very similar to what existed in Egypt just before dynastic times and just before writing appeared in Egypt. Now, the Dogen have a very strong tradition of wanting to preserve purity of language, and so it's not thinkable that they once had a, a system of writing and then somehow forgot about it over the years. The way Dogen, the Dogen priests do things, that's not a thinkable possibility. So instead, we have to conclude that if the Dogen ever were with the Egyptians, that it must have happened before writing appeared. But you see very similar traces in every aspect that you look at. For example, in the mythology where the Egyptians have eight Aeneid pairs of gods and goddesses who emerge as full-fledged Egyptian gods and goddesses, with the Dogen we have eight uh, relatively undefined ancestors who emerge in the same way in pairs, male and female pairs. And again and again through the mythology, you see this. You see a sort of a, a reduced version with the Dogen of what eventually came to be recorded in Egypt, as if it were an earlier version. Then when you look backwards from Egypt, you look at the pre-dynastic tribes, there's certain things you can compare to there. And predictably, the Dogen preserve a system that is very similar to the pre-dynastic tribes in certain ways. This use of symbolism is quite incredible. Uh, particular emphasis here I would place upon this sequence of numbers from 1 to 10. I'm interested also that so long ago they clearly knew about the origins of the universe, the, the composition of matter that you talk to. And it seems that that was most likely borrowed or inherited from the Egyptians. But it certainly suggests in itself that there was then, as there is now, a higher power that guides this. Yes, there. if you go far enough back in any of the cultures that I have studied, you reach a level at which a priest overtly states that the information that I relate to science was, was given to them by teachers who knew more than they did. And so clearly there's an outside force, a more knowledgeable force, that is guiding the development of cosmology of these tribes. In Buddhism, Adrian Snodgrass is a, a leading authority on Buddhist symbolism and uh, architecture, and he says the most sacred symbols of the Buddhists are considered to have been given to humanity by a non-human source. And, and this is where you did state in your book uh, who took such great care to help us organize our early societies. And I suspect that that is even the case today. There is a higher force that is really wishing to help us. I'm not sure whether it would be sensible to suggest that they're trying to help us at this stage in terms of the humanities, but certainly in protecting Mother Earth, yes, in, in going, so moving back to our planet and, and nature. I think so too, and um, at least some aspect of, of that outside force seems to be very benevolent to us, very, taking a very benign approach to how they're trying to help us. Now, I, I can't say the Dogen associate their teachers with the stars of Sirius, and in a lot of ancient cultures you see references to Sirius. For example, in ancient Egypt, the word for teacher is the same as the word for Sirius. So there are connections that would, if someone said to me, time's up, where do you think, um, where do you think these teachers might have come from? my best guess would be serious. This in itself, does it offer any sort of connection with uh, the civilizations of Atlantis 
do you think, or are there any parallels, at least, or parity of, of what was occurring there? Yes, there are commonalities. And part of what I tried to accomplish with my third book is to take an overview of the cultures that I had studied, the ancient traditions I had studied, and sort out what they each had in common and organize that as if to infer an original plan of cosmology and lay out what I consider to be the signature attributes of those of that original plan. And when you go to places like Gobekli Tepe, you find that the things they're turning up there keep flagging and highlighting signature attributes of the same plan. And same thing when you go to, to Atlantis, much of the symbolism that has survived and much of the discussion around Atlantis falls into the you know, Jung's archetypal um, symbols and, and themes, which are the symbols and themes of this cosmology. It seems interesting to look at all of these civilizations. Atlantis, you, you have the Anunnaki, you have the opposing polarities, as some would say, the, the darkness and the light. Is this a philosophy that the Dogen had as well? Did they uh, differentiate between those two polarities in their culture? They do, oftentimes with some interesting differences when you compare to, say, Egypt. In Egypt, you have a canine who's the judge of good and evil in the underworld. The Dogen have a comparable character, and again, a canine. In the Dogen's case, it's a fox. But he's defined as the judge between truth and error, not good and evil. Is this uh, where you talk about, uh, you, you are talking about the Dogen creation story, and, and to quote a passage, in the universe there is a principle of twin births, but this flawed union between God and earth created only one being, the jackal. Is that one of the same, just a different terminology? Yes, this is, this is all, this whole storyline that's being played out in myth is a metaphor for how creation happens. And it's a complicated metaphor because it's simultaneously describing stages in the formation of matter and stages in the formation of biological reproduction and stages in the formation of the universe itself. So everything is, is aimed at trying to lay out a sort of a timeline for us or trying to lay out a series of metaphors that we can we can judge by when we see them. A familiar one of these metaphors would be water, fire, wind, and earth. There are typically four-level metaphors that are set up. Uh, one of the metaphors is expressed in terms of an egg growing into a small chick, growing into a, a goose, and then to a flying goose. Another metaphor is uh, running from a seed, growing into a shoot of a plant, and eventually becoming a full-blown plant. Is this something that you could place into context, or were they trying to place it into context with the, the Big Bang as we come to know it? Yeah, they do have an event similar to the Big Bang, which they, they explain why it happened. They explain what the situation had been prior to the Big Bang, which, which science hasn't really gotten around to yet. But to hear how the Dogen describe it, it seems as if the equivalent of two black holes were feeding matter into a confined space that maybe their own gravity was restricting. And this confined space was spinning faster and faster and faster as it was fed more and more matter until it reached a critical point where the strength of whatever was holding it in place could no longer hold given the amount of mass that was being spun. 
that uh, it, today also be considered as a vacuum? It, it could be. It's complicated what goes on with black holes, but and they're, they're not really sure what happens to, to something when it enters a, ba- a black hole. But the Dogen uh, draw, draw a picture of two um, inward-facing thorns that are roughly the same shape as the event horizon of a black hole, and they show it creating a little almost flying saucer-shaped um, entity between the two, which is where this primordial matter, which was the potential matter of the universe, was, was housed before what would be the equivalent of a, bl- a Big Bang event. What is, seems so interesting to me, Laird, is, is they even talk to, maybe in a roundabout way through symbolism, uh, the quantum structure of an atom. I mean, my goodness me, uh, in our high technological world that we live in, to consider that they were that far advanced is quite amazing, and certainly everything indicates that they were. Or their teachers were. Yes, and this general description or detail that they provide, I'm assuming was handed down to them or taught to them in creating civilization from a much larger universal perspective. Yes. The sense that I get is that a group that we might have think of similarly to the Peace Corps was delegated to deliberately come here and try to raise humanity up from a level of hunter-gatherers to a level where we had agriculture and we, we could weave clothing and we could organize villages and have social structures. And that the group that was delegated was prohibited from giving us deep science, that they were expected to, to not provide us with that. And so my sense is that in thinking about it, um, imagine if you have a small child who you, you need to, the child is asking questions about where they come from. Well, at two years old, you might give the child a very different answer than you might give them when they're 15. But a good parent realizes that whatever answer they give them when they're two needs to be based on something real. It needs to be to orient them and posture them in a way that when they are 15, they're going to be able to acquire the actual truth. And so the civilizing plan that was evolved or seems to have been evolved was oriented in that way to try to get us looking at things from the right perspective. I think the idea was that as we evolved and became more sophisticated, we'd realize that there were parallels between our religious tradition and science, and then use the religion to guide us to the deeper science. This is uh, an interesting perspective that you you have in Chapter 5, where you talk about the parallels to the Big Bang. And I will not repeat the whole extract, but you start off by saying every form of matter, life, and thought that exists today can trace its ancestry through a sequence of earlier forms all the way back to the Big Bang. And you finish off that passage, in fact this was Rush Dozier Jr., by saying the perfect unity that existed at the moment of the Big Bang has unraveled over the eons. Since the Big Bang, the overall direction of change in the universe has been one way from order to chaos, and I... I think that if we, we, we can look back uh, all the way to the Roman Empire, uh, we can come through the Renaissance period. And it seems, particularly today, that the organizations, the religious organizations, the, the establishment that many refer to, are very responsible for this movement towards 
chaos. Is that something that you would agree with? Is, is that where this is going? I think that, that whoever organized the original civilizing plan expected that we would progress more quickly than we did and that there would be fewer obstacles to our progressing. And so I think they were imagining a 500-year time frame, not a 5,000-year not a time frame. And so what's interesting to me is that the cultures who never developed writing are the ones who have retained the system of uh, cosmology in the best form. They rely strictly on mnemonics and on myths that represent certain things to preserve the tradition. Uh, for example, um, in Buddhism, if you can build a Buddhist stupa, you can recreate all of the important aspects of this uh, civilizing plan, or all important aspects of cosmology relating to creation. And so you can do that without written language. You can do that simply by knowing how to build the structure. But I would say it's not so much the fault of religion that things have gone more into chaos over time as it is the fact that it took so long, so very long for us to acquire the level of science we needed to recognize that the, this early religion was science. It, it certainly would indicate to me that the different accounts, uh, whether you talk about the traditional Bible or, or other accounts that are out there uh, about the way that civilization has evolved, that symbolism is a very concise, truthful process. It seems that writing is very open to interpretation, manipulation, and it seems that this is where the Dogen uh, civilization had it right, to my way of thinking, that this symbolism, although it appears to be simple, is much more complex and complicated than the written word. It really is, and in, in Dogen culture, every aspect of their daily life is designed in a way that orients them to this cosmology, I mean, the way they weave a cloth, or the way they plow a field, the way they organize their villages. When they step out of their hut in the morning, the animals and plants and uh, structures they see in their daily life are all designed in such a way as to keep them, keep their thought processes oriented in a particular direction. And so once that starts to break down, that holds up very well as long as, it, as, long as you retain the symbolism. But once you invent writing, and you can write the key aspects of it down, then there seems to be less of an, an urgency to, to maintain it as part of your daily life. And at that point, the structures break down. This is indicating that they were very close not only to nature, but very close to Mother Earth, even Father Sky, in right. their everyday movements. That is possibly would you say something that has been retained uh, by the the dogan tribes of today but moreover in tribes or indigenous groups in in places like the amazon yes uh, the dogan are facing pressures of civilization all the time they are being assimilated slowly so over time i expect that even their efforts are going to be going to be thwarted but if you go to the very primitive tribes that are truly isolated, um, first of all, I think you get a better picture of what the natural proclivities of humanity are in terms of how far we will progress towards what we're calling a civilized society and what forms that those would have naturally taken. And many of the indigenous people seem much more 
in tune with their environment. Clearly, they belong here, and clearly many of the things we're doing don't belong here. We're not in harmony with our environment. And I think that's very interesting in realizing now that we are at a precipice where our do-consume society, our materialism that we have, somehow either concludes through some type of divine intervention or some sort of implosion, not as we would have seen in ancient civilizations in terms of the way that the Roman Empire imploded or, or, or the Mayan Empire imploded, but almost an implosion of Mother Earth itself actually saying, I cannot handle this any further. Would that sort of scenario been predicted uh, even back in the Egyptian culture and, and the Dogen culture? Did they perhaps realize that as something that that was going to occur? Well, I think they realized the importance of retaining a sense of harmony with your, with your planet. And they realized that the only way life is sustainable is if you pay attention to the things that foster life. And certainly the Egyptian system was very deeply rooted in that, and the Dogen system is also. They have a particular method of doing things, a particular way of looking at things, and feel very firmly, very strongly that that method needs to be preserved. These vibrations that we talk about, um, my great friend uh, Irvin Dardic, who, who works with uh, Zero Point Energy, talks about waves being in the same uh, synergetic place uh, as, as the planet itself suddenly needs to come about. It, it seems to me, Laird, in talking to wonderful people around the world, especially those who are living in, in countries like Ecuador, that... It is the indigenous people and quite possibly the, the tribes now that we see uh, that are left over from the Dogon who will ultimately have the answers for this in a new governance, uh, possibly something that will uh, repel platforms that we have today in economics and, and politics. It could be that they, uh, rather than, as in Haiti, putting their hands out for money, might actually come around saying, okay, we're so close to the earth now, we don't need money, we just need Western developed technology and skills and gifts to be able to complement what we have here in our community. And so it, it, do you think that it could be th these tribes that actually f eventually find the answers here? Certainly, I think it's, the, I, I believe that the, the less te technologically advanced groups are better equipped to survive any disruption to society that might occur think of the Amish, and if the trappings of our modern society were suddenly to fall to the ground for whatever reason, the Amish would barely feel it. Life would go on as usual for the Amish. And so there's something to be said for staying close to your roots and staying close to the earth and, and not moving too far away from that uh, technologically. In the Dogen culture, how important was water it's a i know quite a naive question but i think it has importance placed on it if we look back to the atlantis civilization we we see the first and the second firmaments we we see how water is involved in so many ancient texts 
How did the Dogen look at water? How did they uh, specify the importance of it in terms of their everyday life and their their civilization? Okay, the concept's important enough that one of the first books written by the French anthropologists who studied the Dogen was called God of Water in French. In English, it's called Conversations with Ogotameli. Ogotameli was a, the name of a Dogen priest. But the original book, which was a diary of Marcel Griot's um, initial instruction in the Dogen system was called God of Water. And so he placed a very high importance on the concept of water for the Dogen. But in terms of the Dogen system of creation, in the Dogen mindset, the reality that we see is not is not an actuality. It's a reflection or an image of a more fundamental reality that exists at the level of waves, which they compare to water. And so one metaphor I would use is if you imagine the television programs that are being broadcast out into the air waves in whatever forms, these television programs exist in the form of waves at some point. And until you turn your television set on in such a way as to receive it and translate that into an image for you, the, the image you're seeing is not really the reality. The reality is that the, the program exists as waves. The Dogen are saying that that's the way creation works that reality exists at the level of waves and that our world is an accurate reflection of those waves, what, ha what occurs at the level of those waves. And they conceptualize the world, conceptualize the universe in, into three worlds. Um, there's a level of waves which represents the first world and then an, an act of perception. Okay, in science, experiments have been done on the, in quantum science to show that matter can behave either as a wave or as a particle, and that it tends to behave as a wave until it's perceived, and then magically transforms into something that behaves like a particle. And so the Dogans say that in their first world of existence, existence exists as waves, and then an act of perception comes along and causes a change to happen. And that change uh, does a number of things. First, it, uh, it creates a duality that hadn't existed before. And so everything after that point of perception happens in pairs. And second of all, it creates a structure, a second world structure, where things appear to behave as particles, not as waves. Is there any explanation or recommendation in that case of how we can find singularity? out of the way that these polarities have been created and in that did they when we talk about this I, I believe that we're talking about intention is there enough evidence to prove or to show that they realized that there were different planes different dimensions that are in space and time because we do talk about the third fourth and fifth dimension today is that something that they expressed? Yes, they talk about relationships between what we see as four dimensions. Now, there are aspects of their myth that are myths that are uh, seem to be describing relationships between time and light. For example, um, the creator god of the Dogon is named Ama, and he's a likely counterpart to the Egyptian god Amen. And Ama created a perfect world at the level of waves, and a second mythological character named Ogo, whose name in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language means light, believed that 
that he could create a, a universe that was as perfect as Amas. And in order to do that, he broke off a square piece of Amas placenta, which the square represents the concept of space, and used that square to try to create a second creation. Did not realizing that in the process he was going to be separated eternally from his twin sister, who represents the, the concept of, of time or of light, and that he would spend the rest of eternity trying to reunite uh, himself with his twin sister. This uh, contextually, I suppose, is related through the traditional Bible. And when we talk about God and we talk about Satan or Lucifer, there are parallels here that travel through all of these texts from different uh, eras, different civilizations. There are, but to look at the history of what happened to it, okay, from my perspective, l looking at events as they transpired around 4000 BC, I see a group of teachers who seem to have done everything they possibly could to help us. Um, I don't see any sign of working against us or trying to limit us. Someone was, was giving us their best shot. And this group decided to create an, es an esoteric tradition. Now, the odd thing about that is that in Dogen society, any person is allowed to study as much as he wants about the esoteric tradition. The women learn from the women and the men learn from the men. But it's student-driven. The student has to ask a question and if the student asks for that, the next right question, then the priest is obligated to give him a correct answer, him or her. Mm. Now, I as an outsider, if I were to walk in to a Dogen village and start asking impertinent questions of a Dogen priest, the priest would consider those questions to be out of order. They're not in the sequence that they should be in, given what he knows of, of my education. And he, he's obligated in that circumstance to either remain silent or to lie to me if he has to in order to protect the secrets of his tradition. Now, it seemed to me that there was no motive making a secret tradition out of something that any tribes person could learn. So if they weren't trying to hide the tradition from the tribes people, who were they trying to hide it from? And the conclusion I come to is they were trying to hide from whoever had delegated them to come here the fact that they had chosen the entire tradition on real science, which is, to my way of thinking, the only way of, of basing a creation tradition. If you're teaching a child, you would want to teach them to them in terms of science. And so that the purpose of the esoteric tradition, in my mind, is to hide from a higher-up or from a superior the fact that you transgressed a rule. And so the rule in the esoteric tradition was if anybody, no matter who they are, comes in and starts asking impertinent questions, don't answer them or lie to them. Don't tell them what they want to know. That's a very interesting concept, isn't it? So then, around 1500 B.C., you suddenly have a jealous god on the scene, one who says that humanity should pay no attention to any other gods. There are, should be no other gods before this jealous god. And suddenly, things start changing all around the globe. The systems of writing, which originally are conceptual drawings that have meanings get deliberately changed. The letters are turned over or they're modified so they no longer look like what they used to look like in alphabets all over the world. And you have people in cultures like Egypt deliberately desecrating their own 
religious sites and destroying their own religious sites. And what appears after that fact is a creation story of the type we see in Genesis, which has many of the essential elements of the original story, but none of the detail. Uh, this is where, in Genesis, uh, Genesis, of course, around the Babylon, this is where God mixes all the languages. So right. there, there is, in context, there are similarities. Right. And if you go back far enough, I mean, I've done comparisons between very old words in Turkey that existed, likely existed at the time of Gobekli Tepe and ancient Egyptian words and found a very large degree of overlap. There are probably 25 different meanings in the Turkish language for the word tepe, and uh, two-thirds of those are documented in Budge's Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary under, under pronunciations like tepe. As we close down towards the end of this first program, and my goodness me, Led, it goes by quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> I would like to turn, in the last 15 minutes, to a general conversation of how we saw similar forms in different parts of the world, of which I'm sure the Dogon civilization was a great part of, and the Egyptians were a great part of, as we saw these reference points, these great buildings or great places around the world that developed around the same period, whether it was in Egypt or in South America, in Mexico, and there's no doubt about it that it's hard to believe that there was any real communication or connection between these civilizations, and yet they all appeared at the same time. Is that something that was entertained in the Dogen symbology? Did they see this happening? Were they aware of this? They were aware of the idea that the system of the civilizing system that they were being instructed in might also be being presented in other regions of the of the world. Now, some people will tell you that if you have two cultures at the same stage of development where the only building material they really have is stone, that our cultures are going to eventually think to cut square pieces of stone and stack them up like a pyramid and that you don't need a civilizing plan to make them do that, that they're going to naturally do it, and it's going to look similar to us after the fact. But my answer to that is to say, but each of these archetypical forms, it's not just the form we're concerned about. There's some very complicated symbolism that goes with those forms, and that complicated symbolism isn't the automatic consequence of stacking stones on themselves. When you look at the Great Pyramids, of course, and, and the, the largest are built on a 26-acre site with uh, the top of the pyramid uh, even today a quarter of an inch out at the peak in relationship to its base. Right. It, it seems amazing to me that anybody would be arrogant enough to consider that there was uh, anything else but uh, some sort of higher power that could have created this and created them across the world. Right, and that would also explain why, okay, if you ever took a shop class in, in school, a wood shop or a metal shop or a leather shop class, typically the instructor would, would work with the class to produce the first example of an item they were going to create as a class. So they would and lead they by would, example. Yes, and then the class would uh, then to continue on their own to make their own copies of that. And if you imagine that sort of a process happening in each of these ancient cultures, you're going to find, as in Egypt, 
that the very first examples of things like pyramids are perfect, and yet the ones that follow are suddenly not so perfect as if the culture had lost the memory of how to do it. I say, no, the reason that happens is because the first work is the work of the teachers uh, primarily, and the second is the work of the student. Is there something else behind that? I do understand, of course, what you're saying. <laughs> in some ways, you could call it laziness, whatever you want to call it, in, in reproducing over time. But is also there an influence that arrests the uh, inspiration of a civilization to continue with something? Almost a darker power, that's what I'm saying. Today, an establishment that would stop that sort of civilization being built under the original teachings. The Doga don't really um, retain a concept of good versus evil. They really are more oriented, as I said, toward a concept of the interrelationship of truth versus error. And so they wouldn't call it evil. The Dogen have done some very interesting things in their society. For example, in every village, there's a discussion house that's built to half height. And the rule is any two tribes, people who have a, a disagreement, are required to go to the discussion house along with anybody else who has an interest in that agreement, that disagreement, and no one can leave until they resolve it. That seemed to be a very streamlined, organized civilization. If there was any degradation in the, that civilization, when did it occur? When did the breaks occur? With the Dogen, it really has it. They, there has been a continuity of civilization similar to what we saw in Egypt over the course of 3,000 years, only with the Dogen extended yet another 2,000 beyond the end of the Egyptian civilization. And one very common occurrence in these ancient cultures is they seem to have deliberately organized groups of priests and deliberately sent them out to locate, relocate themselves in some place far removed from civilization, very inaccessible locale where they could preserve a copy of, an untouched copy of the original tradition. It's almost a, like making a backup copy. Sounds like the Dead Sea Scrolls in, yes, in some the, ways. The Naki were originally a group of priests who, who located themselves at the very inhospitable border between Tibet and China. And the Hopi Indians sent out groups of priests to locate themselves, deliberately locate themselves on the top of some cliff or somewhere very far removed from the rest of civilization. So in that event, there must have been some sort of fear of an external influence? Uh, not some, yeah, may, maybe not a fear of an external influence as an appreciation for the fact that a society in isolation is going to retain its form better than one that's not in isolation. You complete uh, your conclusions and you, you talk or quote to a, a global ancient system of instructional myth. I would love in the, the final minutes of the program to just with you define that word myth. I, I think that there's so much misunderstanding of this uh, because the myth that we talk about is a cosmology. It is a, a reality. How do you see this word as in a concept today, as in its, the, the way that it should be explained today? In Dogen culture, a myth is simply a fireside story that is told to the general populace as a way of orienting them, even without their knowing it, to eventual concepts of the cosmology. So every child growing up 
will hear these stories being told and they'll repeat the stories as they're growing up. And when they get to be of the right age where they become interested in their religion and they start exploring it more deeply, they realize that all of these myths have served the purpose of posturing them in the right way to ask the right questions about the religion. They are myths that are accurate in yes, they're, they're in, in passing them on through the intergenerationally and generationally. Yeah, the purpose of those myths is to present and and make familiar to the general populace many of the key symbols of the cosmology and many of the key themes of the cosmology, only without any extraneous detail. So it's on a very bo- a grand level where they start to see a relationship between pellets of clay and planets and stars. How would you describe the Dogen culture, the Dogen civilization in today's world? Uh, should we be looking at this more? Is it a well-known civilization? I suspect that it is not and that sh- it should be looked upon with more eager approach. I think that what's best for the Dogen system is now is what be- was always best for it, which is to leave it as much in isolation and under its own control as possible and without undue influence from the outside. But I think it presents a wonderful model for how a culture ought to look at their purpose and how they ought to look at relationships between different segments of the population, segments of a culture. There are very good examples in Dogen society that we could learn from simply by, um, by example. Les Granton, it has been an enormous pleasure talking to you today. We could carry this conversation on all night. We have been talking in reference to your publication, The Science of the Dogen. I will look forward to talking to you again very soon. Well, thank you very much. I will too. And to our listeners today, I hope that you enjoyed this program. You can gain information on this and any other program in this series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.